0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Better Reading Podcast. My name is Caroline Overington. I'm standing in for Cheryl today, and I'm delighted to be standing in for her because we have such a treat. We've got Rachel Treasure, fresh from Tasmania, fresh from your new life, from your incredible journey that you've been on. Um, and also with a brand new book, White Horses, Number 7. Welcome. Thank you, Carolyn. Now, last time you and I spoke, my goodness, your life was in chaos, complete chaos. You were completely cut adrift from your land, which I think for a female farmer is so difficult. Tell us what's happened.
2: Well, since that time, uh, just to fill listeners in, basically uh, when divorce was imminent, my dad ...decided that he would keep my ex-husband on the farm... ...because, you know, Dad's in his uh, late 80s, it's a, it's a gender thing. And so uh, the children and I had to find our own way... ...and I started life again financially at 40... ...because when you, you're a farm girl like me, you invest in your farm. So that was an exciting place to find myself in, particularly as a writer... ...and I think from that time I got to delve within myself... ...and work out what were the subconscious programmings and beliefs being female and having this happen to me. So it's been an absolute gift. That's all I can say about it is that I would not change that history for a second, even though I grieve my land. uh, I just think it's been the best gift because I've been able to get through that and change my belief systems and impart that to my beautiful children. I have a boy and a girl. And Since then, I've repartnered. Oh, well, well, slow slow down. down. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So
0: that sense of it being a gift, I'm sure you didn't feel that at the time. I'm sure it must have been extraordinarily difficult to find yourself uprooted. So much of your literature, so much of your work um, is bound up in the land. And I got a sense last time we spoke that you felt unmoored. Um, a sense of uh, real loss, grieving a real loss of your identity, but you've come full circle by the sound of it, and
2: you're back on the land. Yes, back on the land. Uh, so, w- when uh, I repartnered with Daniel, who is my beautiful neighbour of three years, um, and we didn't, we decided to fall in love after we <laughs> <had> moved, <laughs> which was a bit inconvenient. Um, but well, he, tell us that story. She, he yeah. was your neighbour on the old property. Uh, no. So um, so in Down the Dirt Roads, which was my non-fiction work, which I guess was a healing process of writing coming that out of that That was last year's exp- book? Yes, that mm-hmm. was the last book that I, that I put out into the world. That was really a story of the impact of losing that land but also how I regained my compass and I talk about a seven-point compass where we don't just have the four... Um, directions of northwest, south, east, and west. Well, I've said too many, but um, <laughs> but, there's, um, but we also have above, below, and within. And so I was taking that knowledge forward with me, and and above, below, and, and within. within, as well as the four point compass that we live by. So we have, um, yeah, Father Sky and Mother Earth, and then. The land within us. So I'd, I'd come to a point of really feeling grounded, and that's when I was ready to repartner. So it's not like I suddenly found a man to whisk me off and save me. I made my own way through and journeyed through that. And so. And how amazing is that? Because that is a story that you've, in fact, written at least once
0: before in your novels where it isn't that you get saved by the man. It isn't your characters don't get whisked away, as you say. They find the strength in themselves. Mm. And then when they're standing on their two feet, that's when love enters the picture.
2: And yet it happened for you in real life. It did happen. A lot of things have happened for me, <laughs> me in such a good way. Um, yes. Yeah, so, So with Daniel, he's father and mother, uh, they saw the potential that we had as a couple and so they uh, gifted him 100 acres of land that they'd been leasing out for 20 years. So we now, after we've had three years of regenerating this lovely it was lifeless soil it's been cropped and sprayed into oblivion it's in southern tasmania and we're we're regenerating it and all of these lovely experiences that we're having with low stress stock handling and ethical um, ethical treatment of animals it's all coming alive just in the in the short time we've had it and that, is what has been an underpinning of White Horses with my creation of the planet. Yeah, the the farm known as the planet or the property
0: really known as the planet. Let's not jump too far ahead. I want to know, I mean, White Horses, obviously your seventh novel. Um, It's set in WA, which is
2: West Australia, which is a really lovely part of the world. How familiar with it were you before? Uh, I'd been over there on a road trip as a youngster and then again in my early 20s, mid-20s. Um, and I think as a touring author, I'd been across again. The reason I picked WA as a setting is I'm a reef and beef girl from Tassie. <laughs> but there aren't droving routes vast and long enough for a girl to be isolated from technology like my main character needed to be. So that's why I picked Western Australia. I'd no sooner written the first chapter way back in 2008 fourteen and I was on I was over on the West and I wrote the chapter about the sun setting into the sea and the moon this giant orange moon coming up behind my character's back. Which only happens there. Which only happens there. Yeah. And I was standing on the beach in Western Australia and I watched the sun go down and then a giant orange moon came up and it was a confirmation that I'd picked the right setting because I'd already written that chapter and, again, there it was in my life.
0: And there it was. Yes. Now, the main character in the book, um, you call her Drift, although that's not not her real name. Her real name is Melody. But she's a young woman and she lives, as you say, a very isolated existence. She's with her father on the droving routes. Um, She enjoys it, I think it's fair to say. She's inspired by it. But there's, the absent, there's quite a few absences in her life and she, she has to do her best to kind of make up for them. But why was it important to you that there was no mother figure there as a, as a writer? Why did you decide to do that?
2: Well, I decided to do that because after my personal journey, I wanted to investigate the treatment of Mother Earth and the treatment of mothers and how there's such a parallel of this lack of feminine energy in our food production systems and also mothers really... There's, I guess, I've, I'd studied nutrition in, in livestock and animal behaviour and it's the maternal line that imparts nourishment and, and food wisdom. And so that's why I wanted to make Drift a character that didn't have a mother and she's she's looking out to see. So the, the mothering has to come from other sources and one of those sources is the feminine energy of the earth itself. Because I think with food production has become so industrialised, we all know the fallout from that. And so it was very much a, my own personal investigation as as to what it was to be a mother in a world where Mother Earth was not at all and respected or treated well.
0: Mm. And, and as well, I mean, there are the themes there of regeneration and rebirth, um, of gentle handling of the land... Um, Actually, I read recently that women in Australia couldn't even call themselves farmers until very, very late in the piece. You were a farmer's wife, another title of yours. But um, that sense of women bringing something
2: different to the land, you wanted to explore that? Yes, I guess so. But also, too, I'd read The Thirteen Original Clan Mothers, which is a, a non-fiction book by Jamie Sams. Sams. She's a native... Wait, tell us again what it's called, The Thirteen, 13 original. original... Clan Mothers. And Jamie Sams is a Native American Indian woman who has basically um, their ancient wisdoms and teachings for each moon. And so I hung white horses upon those teachings because... Uh, I can just see that the world is getting faster and faster and we have such... We're at war with Mother Nature right now with the chemicals and the pesticides and the herbicides and we're killing the life in the soil. So 95% of our life on earth is actually in the soil because I know for a fact one teaspoon of healthy soil has six billion living organisms in it so that's six billion living organisms in one teaspoon of soil and what we've done particularly in Australia recent in the last 200 years is kill that life and so life is integrated with seed and soil and that comes from women it comes from the feminine energy so we need women to drive food systems so it means it's throwing out the old economic model that we exist by, and putting in a new economic model. And so, I and wa- can you have both? Can you
0: have sustainable production and profit? Abs- because of course, so many farmers need
2: profit. Yeah, absolutely. They're coming up uh, soon. There'll be a, an app on your phone, and you can wave that over an apple in a in a supermarket, and it, it will tell you how many new, nu- how much in terms of nutrients is in that apple. So we're getting to the point where farmers will be paid for the carbon that we sequester and stabilise in our soil. And as regenerative farmers, we can do that really easily. We showcase that on the planet in the In the, story in the book, yes, yes. And, and so farmers will then also be paid per uh, by the nutrition that's actually in the food. Rather than cents per kilo, it'll be cents per goodness. And with regenerative farming, it's a holistic concept. And there's already models around the world of farmers and communities actually doing that. And that's what's really exciting. And I think with white horses coming out now when there's bushfires and there's yeah, what I term drought. Queensland's burning as we speak. Yes, yeah. and northern New South and and um, there's towns in the regions. At, you don't notice it in Sydney, you just don't notice it, but it's a desert out there. It's... The tree's So Well, dying, when the so. pictures come
0: in, it's extraordinary, mm. isn't it? The cracked earth and the... Tell us about the planet. I mean, the planet is like a character in the book, isn't it? It it's is. A, it's taking back um, a scorched piece of the earth and turning it into what it could be, self-generating, lush, beautiful, uh, rewarding in its own way. Tell us about what you wanted to do with that
2: character. Yeah, well, um, I have a farming mentor called Colin Sice and he was telling me about in the West, they're locking up the farms and leaving them. So that's another reason of placing white horses in that really quite sandy soil. With The Planet, I wanted to showcase all the brilliant things that I know my farming colleagues are doing around the world. And I called it The Planet because I used to work on a property uh, in Rolleston in Queensland called... Planet Downs, and we would refer to ourselves as the planet people. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and so the head stockman and, you know, Relly and Jay say we were planet people and um, little community there. So that's why I called it the planet, but it's also a representation of what we can do. It's like a microcosm. It is it? a microcosm, and it's based on actual farming experience that I know exists. So I wanted White Horses to have that real sense of hope when you do see those pictures coming in and hay drives and donate to the struggling farmers. There are people that I'm not saying they're not experiencing dry times, but because they've looked after the 95% of life in the soil, their farms are getting through these dry times. So the planet and drift when her cattle stray onto the property of the planet, it's like she's walked into a Garden of Eden. It and really I, is, isn't yeah. it? You get a
0: sense of hope from her.
2: Yes. The other um, theme, I guess, well, there's a, there's a
0: few, but one of the other key themes that runs through the book, um, We're Living Through the... Era of hashtag Me Too, mm. and that's a key part of um, the story. I don't want to give too much away, so we'll tread cautiously. Mm. But was that um, was that an issue that you particularly wanted to address? It works also as a metaphor of what we're doing to the land too. So, mm. I was interested in what your what your approach was. Which 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 way were
2: you trying to go with that? Were you trying to say something about sexual politics between men and women? Or about the land? It was mostly about the land because I don't like to polarise people, particularly with gender. And I noticed coming from the background that I had where it was 99% males in a room at a farming get-together wow. and we we're mostly talking about chemicals and those kinds of applications to your farm, when I joined the regenerative farming movement, you get down to gender's just not an issue. And I also wanted to showcase within White Horses the characters of the men. They're struggling. They're self Dedicating with alcohol and drugs, and that is a, a real signpost to say that if we have more balance and we have a matriarchal culture rather than an entirely patriarchal culture, then we lift those kinder men up in the world. And so that was it wasn't a hashtag. This has happened to me. I'm a victim. Mm-hmm. I never want to stand in victimhood, nor do I want my characters to. So while they may encounter um, some. some those kinds of challenges they need to kind of go within and and triumph out of it. And I think too, looking back at my own childhood, if I had been a teenager with a mobile phone, I don't think I would have survived teenagehood. And I look at what young women face today with that social pressure and... um, it's it's intense and it's shocking for me well that's another theme
0: in the book too isn't it another idea in the book because drift and and the way of her livelihood or her life is so removed from modern 21st century um, Western democracies. So she's not familiar at all with technology. What, what
2: were you trying to say there? I was basically trying to say to young women that you need to find a stillness. And it's very hard to find a stillness within if you're constantly looking at a screen and constantly comparing yourself to those images on those screens. So that's why I deliberately made Drift, Drift a character that hadn't experienced technology. Um, and she's looking at her peers going, this is odd. This is really not natural and it's not normal. And it's also another device to bring the older woman into the story, which we'll we'll get to. But um, I'd read uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves, Clarissa Pinkola Mm -hmm. Estes. Sorry, I say that in a Tazia's accent, (laughs) but Clarissa (laughs) Pinkola Estes. Um, But anyway, so Clarissa's book showcased the fact that crones were made to be, you know, bad witches so in the 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 movies that they show that women are either emulating the traits of men or they're old wicked women so I wanted to bring in older characters that held a depth held independence and also held wisdom at their hearts and that's they're the people who shape drift in her life rather than a screen Yes. And those two
0: older characters, one is a travelling librarian, like that is the dream job for so many people. Wouldn't that be wonderful to be sort of arriving and spreading the sort of gift of reading to
2: people? Why did you choose that as her profession? Well, I think books are everything to me. They're how I survived a very difficult childhood. And I felt that I was more excited, the bookmobile turning up to school, than the ice cream truck. That's, you know, <laughs> so I already had that interview. Do they still have the bookmobile? Well, they do in some regional areas, but governments are cutting them and they're just so... Which is, which is just a tragedy because um, children, unless they are taught the excitement of books, then they'll just be locked onto screens again and screens are always altering our brainwave states. So books are... Uh, or everything and so yes, it was very deliberate to have Wilma, my travelling librarian, turn up. Um, how, how do you
0: um, how do you uh, cope with that challenge in your own life with two teenagers? You're raising the first generation of kids who will not remember life before the phone.
2: Mm. Well, uh, fortunately, my sixteen year old daughter doesn't have a phone. She <laughs> how She you
0: managed to pull that off. She doesn't.
2: She doesn't want one. She loves her chickens. She loves her horses. Um, she, we might get one later when she starts um, college, which means going to a different school. But, we, you know, all the people around her have mobile phones. There's no need. And my son, he's 14. He's only just got one. Right. And he's not... So, And where I lived previously, we didn't have internet access. So those early years of... Um, you, your, your mind is shaped. You're programmed between um, zero to seven years of age. And my children didn't have that screen influence between zero to seven so in a way that their brains are wired differently and they look at their peers with concern they really do so that
0: that's really interesting actually isn't it because that very much mirrors the story of your character too mm. that she then encounters people who have known nothing else and seems quite stunned by their insecurities
2: and their concerns yes yeah exactly I mean I've my um, teenage daughter, Rosie, she's sort of avoided a lot of inner struggles because she goes out and brushes a horse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're really fortunate to have the lifestyle we do. So I understand in cities it's more in your face um, but... It's, well, there I, is. A, I, I think many people hankering for that mm-hmm. older
0: style Australian childhood for their for their children. I mean, that's a pretty inspiring thing to have in- achieved.
2: Yeah, it's still. The, I mean, I made a conscious choice because I read the data on it, and every time your child gets a ping or a like, it, it gives your brain a shot of dopamine, mm, like the good and, chemicals. Yeah, yeah, and you're addicted. Um, and I, so, and I've noticed a lot of mothers looking at their phones instead of the faces of their babies. So all of this, all of this kind of Observation of the technical world around me has infiltrated white horses. Mm. So that I hope people will just actually walk outside and look at the sky and really notice a cloud, you know, instead of looking at their screen, because that's where they find their inner compass again that we talked about earlier. Now, your second um, influence
0: on drift, or the second sort of feminine energy to enter the book, is
2: the mobile saddler. Tell us about that. Well, Charlie Weatherburn, she's... uh, I hint to it. She has Indigenous connections. Yes. Um, And I'd read Bruce Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. Dark Emu, right. And so I didn't want to make it anything too. I mean, it's not my place as a... I'm a white fella. It's not my place to investigate those kind of journeys. But Charlie really represents that... um, that Australian landscape where there's such wisdom within it. and uh, she she teaches drift her own form of Bush philosophy and wisdom. So and and I, I mean I adore I adore both um, Charlie and Wilma. I think they on some level I'd love, I'd love women like that around me every day just to remind me to go steady.
0: Yeah do you, do you, have you had any of those experiences yourself as a family as well where um indigenous australians have been able to sort of awaken some part of you that you didn't know
2: ..or didn't completely understand before about your connection to land? Um, I think my connection to land's always been there, but I was lucky enough I had a grandmother who was uh, a farmer, but she also taught me dreamtime stories. And shamefully, in the 60s and 70s, at primary school, Tasmanian children were taught that the Aboriginal... Tasmanian Aboriginals were made extinct... So, but my I I, many of our listeners yeah, will recall being taught taught that. that. So, um, so I, but I had my grandmother who taught me Tassie Dreamtime stories and grew um, native flowers in our garden. So, so again, Charlie Weatherborne um, represents that kind of um, notion that this landscape's everything. It's everything. It doesn't matter what your bank account says. If we don't keep this nation rehydrated and keep our life in our soil going, then we've um, we've ruined life for everybody. Mm. Now,
0: Rachel, you with um, Gillaroo were one of the first, in fact, let's say you, you created a whole new genre of writing for Australians, um, where the where the backdrop was uh, not the cities, not the suburbs, but the bush. Um, how do you feel when you kind of look out across the landscape now and you see so many writers following in your wake and creating these extraordinary stories. Um, And I'm thinking even of um, modern writers like Jane Harper um, using that, that backdrop now um, and really taking the world by storm, do you feel a sense of pride and achievement?
2: Oh, I, I wouldn't say pride and achievement. You know, Tassie keeps you very humble. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> life's very um, basic where I'm from. I, I think what I'd love for writers to do is really investigate what's happening with landscape regeneratively and also with Peter Andrews' natural sequence farming. He He's a slow-the-flow fella if people had seen ABC Australian Stories. So I think, yes, we need to tell now narrative about Australia and the bush, but it can't be old and cliched and we can't perpetuate this notion that we're struggling against drought because it's completely unnecessary, totally unnecessary if you adopt regenerative farming principles. So I'm hoping that White Horses is is um, an awakening for a lot of people on a lot of levels and hopefully some Australian writers out there will investigate regen farming and, and create some stories from that foundation. And when you're out and about, um, you're promoting um, White
0: Horses now, obviously, and thank you so much for coming in. Um, do you find that um, your readers, well, were your readers traditionally female, and are you now finding that more men with connection to the land are coming along and both reading your book and interested in what you're
2: doing on the land? Yeah, certainly the gender uh, mix up's been pretty even across the way because the, my book, The Stockman, had the history of the Kelpie uh, woven yeah, within yeah, it. Yeah. So a lot of blokes love their Kelpies, and many. You know, women write and say, "My husband stole your book from my bedside table." <laughs> yeah. um, and you know that certainly on this tour, there's been more and more men showing up because they're the ones who are hurting. They're the ones who have been marketed to as farmers to be at war with Mother Nature. So they're really seeking answers and seeking a way forward. And I think that's why I'm seeing so many more men at my events now, which is really heartening. Because I'm, I'm with the hashtag Me Too. I always say, "You're from the brotherhood of good, kind men," and we need to support you and lift you up as well. And that way we do that for the landscape too.
0: Well, Rachel Treasure, um, rich soil and a rich imagination, wonderful books and a fantastic farm. And I'm thrilled. I was a bit worried about you last time we talked. So I'm absolutely thrilled to find that you've found your feet. You're back on the land where you belong and writing again. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. Take care.